Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Traxler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. I'm Carolyn Ford, joined by Eric Trexler. This week, our guest is David Singer, New York Times national security correspondent and a senior writer. In his 38-year reporting career for the New York Times, he has been on three teams that have won Pulitzer Prizes. He's a two-times bestseller on foreign policy and national security. This week, our conversation is about his latest book, which in the fall will be an HBO documentary, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. Welcome, David. Great to be here with uh, both of you. Well, thank you so much for being here. And today we're here to talk about your latest book, which in the fall will be an HBO documentary, and it's The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. And I want to turn it over to you, Eric, to kick us off. Yeah, Carolyn, thanks. I, I thought I'd kick it off with a, a reading quickly from the afterword of the book, which which I just found incredibly striking. Um, it's, it's actually at General Paul Nakasone's confirmation hearing in March of 2018. He's now the commander of uh, the director of NSA, but he, it, it's uh, Senator Dan Sullivan, Republican from Alaska, is asking him a series of questions. So I just want to read that quickly. What do you think our adversaries think right now? If you do a cyber attack on America, what's going to happen to them? General Nakasone replies with, so basically I would say right now, they do not think that much will happen to them. Senator Sullivan says, they don't fear us, they don't fear us. So is that good? That is not good, Senator. That's right from the director of the NSA in his confirmation hearing. David, I'd, I'd love to kick off the interview today with a, with a little commentary there, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Well, first, thanks for uh, having me on. And uh, writing the book was uh, sort of a culmination of uh, more than a decade of uh, reporting in this territory for the Times. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy the HBO doc when it's out, we hope in October, uh, just before the election, because it'll take you through a lot of these issues, including the one that General Nakasone gets at there, which is essentially the question of deterrence, which is... If you take at face value the American claim that we have the biggest, the best cyber offensive operations in the world, that were the ones who wiped out the Iranian centrifuges a decade ago in Operation Olympic Games, what many of your listeners know of as the Stuxnet attack, if we're the ones who went after the Russians in 2018 to disable the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, before the midterm elections and to go after uh, uh, Russian intelligence. If we're the ones who got into the North Korean uh, missile program, the Iranian missile program, if we put uh, code in the Russian power grid, as I've reported, uh, in an effort to sort of push back at them, then why are we still being attacked? And the answer to that question is that we haven't figured out this deterrence thing, that cyber attacks happen at the short of war level. We're seeing them happen so much because no one wants to take on the U.S. military directly. Eric, you're a 
veteran of, of, of all of this, you know, who wants to like roll up against uh, the Fifth Fleet or something? Nobody. And why and, would you if you didn't have to? And if you didn't have to, and if you can do something as cheap and as usable as cyber. And cheap and usable are two very different things. Cheap, well, you know, we worry a lot about nuclear weapons. I write a lot for the Times about nuclear weapons. But let's face it, to get nuclear weapons, you need uranium or plutonium. You need a billion dollars or so worth of facilities. You need enrichment. You need the years to make a bomb. To do a cyber weapon, it's going to have a lot less drama. It's much easier to hide. You need some uh, teenagers or millennials, some laptops, some stolen code from the NSA, and God knows there's a lot of that floating around, uh, some pizza, some Red Bull, and you're kind of ready to go. That was one of the, the big aha moments for me, David, in your book, is that any buffoon, really, with a, even just a little bit of money and a little bit of determination can cause a lot of damage. And it occurred to me that even I could cause a lot of damage just with the tools that I use every day, you know, just with my social media tools. You can, but, you know, social media, Carolyn, is almost a different type. When I think about cyber, I, I try to divide it up according to what how you would use the weapon. You know, for traditional weapons, we think differently about the dangers posed by rocks and arrows, by uh, handguns, automatic weapons, missiles, and nuclear bombs, right? I mean, there's a big spectrum out there. Mm. In cyber, you have to think about cyber for espionage. That's really how people began with this. Then you have to think about cyber for data manipulation. If I could change the... um, uh, the targeting of missiles in the Pentagon's arsenal, but also if I could just go into the data medical database and change the blood types of every soldier and sailor, imagine the amount of damage you could do. Or change on a COVID vaccine. Or on the COVID vaccine. For national should, advantage. And we should come back at that. Um, if you want to use cyber for sabotage, that's the Iran case, that's the North Korea case, that's the Sony hack where the North Koreans came in and not only revealed emails from within Sony, that's the part a lot of people remember, what they forget is that they destroyed 70% of Sony Pictures Entertainment's computer systems. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I remember yeah. the emails, you're right, but right. I did not realize what they did to their network and their computers. Well, you know, it was when horrible. The, yeah, when the emails came out, you know, we learned the important national security information that Angelina Jolie is reportedly <laughs> difficult to work with on the set. <laughs> But, you know, National Enquirer had a great time with that, but they didn't do very much with the meltdown of 70% of the computer systems, right? Think what it would have taken if the North Koreans didn't have cyber. How would they have destroyed Sony's computer systems in response to their their uh, release of the interview, this really bad movie about an effort yeah, to assess Yeah, I was going to say, they, they wouldn't have stopped that horrible movie's release. They still didn't in this case. You, you know, Eric, I, I often <laughs> said to my kids that 100 years from now, when people say, uh, uh, you know, Grandpa, what started the war between North Korea and the United States? The answer is going to be, well, you have to understand there was this really bad comedy that came out, you know. Right? Uh, but if you were going to go do this without cyber, what would you have to do? You'd have to land some saboteurs at Long Beach. 
grab an Uber up to um, the Sony Studios, hope that the tour was on. It's probably been canceled now for COVID purposes, right? Slip off of the tour and stick dynamite underneath the, the computer center and blow it sky high. Now, if that had happened, whoever was president, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, you know, a Martian, they all would have had to go respond with a military response against Pyongyang because it would have looked like an international terrorism incident in the middle of L.A. Well, and what's crazy is I would contend. There was basically nothing. Yeah. Well, and what they did was more extensive than what they could have done with the scenario you just described. Absolutely. And cheaper and easier. But David never had to enter the United States. David, this is the problem that I get stuck on with the government customers, whether it's in the U.S. or elsewhere. You know, if, if, if a plane's flying over the United States crossing our boundaries, the Air Force has responsibility, right? If, if somebody comes rolling across the borders, it's the Army. If there are ships off the coast, it's the Navy. If a foreign nation state enters our power grid and takes something down. It's DHS. Yes, Sometimes, kind of, unless it's Duke Power or a private power company and they don't want DHS or NSA or anybody else invited in because they're afraid of their stock price or something. There's there's nobody, there's no one throat to choke, as I like to say. There's nobody that can be held accountable because there's no one entity that's responsible, even if you get attribution down, which is tough. That's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the things I did, Eric, in reporting for this book was I sat in, they were kind enough to, to let me in, uh, on the simulation that once every two years, the electric power grid industry, including Duke, uh, participates in for a mass attack on the U.S. power grid. And it was a really good simulation the year I sat in. Let's see, the book came out in 2018, so I was probably in, this was either December of 2017 or January of 2018. And in the attack scenario, it was a combined cyber and physical attack. So you had cyber attacks happening to take out power stations in the United States. And meanwhile, you had snipers coming in and basically shooting at these facilities so that you couldn't get your computer experts in and out of the buildings to actually bring the cyber attack, you know, compensate for it and bring it back up, try to remediate it. And it was a really good scenario. So then there's a phone call with all of the CEOs, which the actual CEOs joined, uh, of many of the big power companies. And what I discovered was that their response was completely disjointed from whatever was happening in the White House Situation Room. And it, I mean, there was just no connection whatsoever. So let me ask you a question. And, and this is going to sound obvious, but why would you expect it to be connected? The, the entities themselves don't work together typically. Well, they're getting they're they've been spending years trying to get together to work work more uh, cooperatively. And I would actually have to say that the two industries that have done this the best have been the power industry, electric power industry, and the financial industry. I'd agree with you. Okay. Those are the two that have realized that a crippling cyber attack would be the end of their business, right? I mean, If Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase went down in a full cyber attack, 
you know that you would pick your money up and move it to someplace you thought protected it better. They might not protect it better, but you'd probably pick up your money and move it anyway. And so they have been so concerned about it that they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars a year on protecting the systems. What I worry about more than that is not the cyber Pearl Harbor, the phrase that you hear politicians use, but the grinding smaller attacks because the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Iranians, they all realize that if you do a mega attack on the U.S., you're going to probably be visited by some B-2s, right? But if you do short of war attacks, you can get away with a lot. That's that low-grade cyber, you know, ongoing cyber conflict you talk about. The uh, I think you call it low-level, never-ending cyber conflict. Right. That's We're right. just continue. And, and your book goes through a decade plus of examples where it's just a little bit, little bit, little bit. Yeah. Which is what we've been seeing Russia do, right? They just just get right up to the edge. Well, everybody, Russia, China. Look at what we learned Iran, last week. Everybody. Last week. Yeah, all of them. But last week we wrote a story about a really innovative Russian attack. We're not even sure it was a government attack. The Russians looked out and saw everybody working from home and said, okay, I want to identify employees who work for really big Fortune 500 companies. I don't want to spend my time cyber attacking mom and pop stores. Okay, I want to go right after the biggest fish in the pond. So what did they do? They looked at who was using VPN, virtual private networks, from home into work. They don't have to get into the VPN. They just have to see that that VPN is the New York Times or General Electric or Boeing. And they say, oh, Eric and Carolyn, they work for Boeing. And so if we can get into their laptop, they will take us to Boeing. their VPN. Yeah. yeah. It was a great article. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that struck me about the OPM breach. I mean – Technically, my records, well, not technically, my records were part of that breach. Um, and I, I thought about it for a minute and I'm like, eh, I'm a low level marketer. It's not a big deal. But then you start to connect the dots and how are these, these foreign nationals are really mapping out the soft underbelly of our workings and how I might be that little thread that they might choose to pull because I do hold a clearance and they can get in with my credentials. And then it becomes, it became clear to me how we're all part of this cyber tapestry that you weave for us. So Carolyn, what's really fascinating about OPM, it's the Office of Personnel Management. It was a Chinese hack. There are a few really fascinating elements to it. First, the Obama administration never told anybody that it was China. It leaked out. We published it. But they never officially came out and did it, which I think was a huge failure of deterrence, number one. Number two, we have learned since that the same units that did OPM also then turned around and did the Anthem healthcare hack, the, what we call the Marriott hack, but it was actually on the Starwood Hotels, which Marriott later acquired. You know, we've discovered a series of other attacks at the same time. So what was this about? Well, first, what it was about was collecting a great database of who's got security clearances around America. 
But second, to get that security clearance, both of you probably had to go fill out this incredibly long form called an SF-86, okay? You probably hated every minute of it. I actually go back to my SF-86 sometimes if I want to understand something or remember something about where I was somewhere. Right. Because it's so comprehensive, David. It's incredibly comprehensive. And so what the Chinese got was not just your name and your social security number. They get your kids, your medical history, your financial history, right? They get every relationship you have ever been in. Imagine the utility of that. They get every foreigner you have ever met, if you could possibly remember. You know, I I was a foreign correspondent in Japan for six years. I'm going to sit there and list every Japanese I ever met for six years. (laughs) Um, So it's incredibly comprehensive. From the Marriott hack, they get where you stayed and maybe who you were traveling with, right? From the healthcare hack, they get your medical records. It's a pretty fabulous database. And what did we discover? As I describe in the book, the CIA actually had to pull back people who they were getting ready to assign to China, who had been training for years to go in under some form of deep cover in China, because suddenly the uh, Chinese either had all their records or when they show up and announce that they're going to be the um, second agricultural uh, secretary in the embassy and they see that their records aren't there, it's like, you know, why didn't they just come in with the with the letters CIA emblazoned on their forehead? Well, and they're burned for life, too. So yeah. an entire generation or more of assets are essentially non-existent at this point. But Eric, think about the incompetence of the U.S. government here. And for your listeners, I know I work for The New York Times. Everybody thinks that, you know, they have it in for Donald Trump. This happened during the Obama administration. OK, <laughs> uh, uh The incompetence here was the Pentagon, the intelligence agencies all locked down their personnel records. Nobody thought about the fact that the most boring bureaucracy in Washington, the Office of Personnel Management, held the clearance records for 22 million people. Well, we're... Were they there because they happened to have storage room? Is that... Am I remembering that right? What you're remembering is OPM... Did the did these searches, but Congress they didn't have enough computer space to keep all of your records, right? Yeah. So Congress had mandated, out of the best of intentions, that before you go off and you buy cloud services and spend the taxpayers' money, you go look around for empty space in the U.S. government. So great, they found it across the mall at the Department of the Interior, where we protected your clearance information with, you know, buffalo migration in Yellowstone. It just goes to show the uh, the, the cost-effective nature and, and, the, and the total capability of cyber, whether you're doing it for exploitation or offensive ac- actions. It really, I mean, it's so, it's so powerful. And Absolutely. like you said, David, the deterrence piece. Right. Where where is the deterrence? Uh, It's missing now to General Nakasone's credit. uh, He has worked really hard on building up American uh, deterrence efforts. 
And one of the ways he has done that is he got the president to sign a fairly secret executive order as described in the book uh, in August of 2018. John Bolton discusses it in his new memoir that uh, begins to put more power into the hands of U.S. Cyber Command and NSA. He commands both and enables them to conduct short of war operations without going through lengthy uh, processes to get approval from the president for each strike. And so those that stuff he did against the Russians in 2018, he did under that authority. We don't know how often he's used it, but that is good. And it's particularly good because, as anybody who has worked for Donald Trump will tell you, Getting him to approve doing something that pushes back on the Russians is not the easiest task around. There was just too much to cover with David for one episode. So we're going to continue our conversation with David on next week's episode, where we will get to his list of things we must do when it comes to cyber warfare and his take on the security of the upcoming elections. Thanks for joining us this week on To The Point Cybersecurity. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share with a friend. I'm Carolyn Ford. See you next week. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store 